Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your physical and mental well-being, and encourage community. Today's special program is a response to the recent shooting murders of two prominent Mendocino County, California uh, citizens, Matt Coleman and City Councilman Jerry Mello. The local community, a quiet and cooperative community, is grieving the loss of these two civic-minded men and asking the question, how could this have been avoided? There is also a sense of fear in the community, for the killer is still at large, armed, and extremely dangerous. The Mendocino County Sheriff's Department is conducting what is possibly the largest manhunt in its history. Based on the history of the man Aaron Bassler, thought to be the killer, and a statement from his father, it appears quite possible, if not likely, that he is suffering from inadequately treated mental illness. This program addresses the question, or rather, the questions. What do we do with those who suffer from mental illness so severe that it makes them an imminent danger to themselves and those around them? Do we put them in prison, in mental hospitals? Do we allow them to run free? Do we order them into treatment? Can we force them to accept treatment? What do we do? Our guests on today's program are Judge Tom Anderson, Nevada County Superior Court Judge, Christina Ragosta, the Legislative and Policy Counsel of the Treatment Advocacy Center in Arlington, Virginia, and Carol Stanchfield, Director of the Turning Point Providence Center in Grass Valley, California. Carol oversees the Assisted Outpatient Treatment Program, which we're going to be talking about on today's program. Welcome, Judge Anderson, Christina Ragosta, and Carol Stanchfield. Are you all with me? Yes, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Carol, we're going to start with you. We know that there's been an approach to treatment adherence that has had both positive and negative effects and implications for the mentally ill. And we know that one of the responses to this has been California Bill 1421, which is also known as Laura's Law. You have been overseeing Laura's Law in Nevada County. Can you tell us about, please tell us about Laura's Law, about the background of how it came about, and a a beginning of how it's working there? Yes. Yes, thank you. Laura's Law is named for a young woman who was uh, volunteering at the clinic in Nevada County um, in the winter in 2001, and uh, a man who had untreated mental illness walked into the clinic and began shooting. He was... um, uh, completely delusional and was uh, uh, there was a history of violence as reported by his family members and and um, 
this tragedy led to the implementation of a bill that had been passed, uh, Bill of 1421, uh, and then under uh, our Proposition 63 and Mental Health Services Act, we um, were asked to start this program in Nevada County. Uh, the the process uh, of of AOT or assisted outpatient treatment is a process by which uh, we are able to determine whether or not a person who is uh, untreated or inconsistently treated for their mental illness may qualify for court ordered treatment. And so we have had uh, some success in Nevada County in implementing um, a process in which we don't wait for a person to be gravely disabled. We don't wait for the person to, again, try to commit suicide or uh, to hurt someone else before we can intervene. And really the question is um, whether or not we provide treatment and and uh, when we provide that needed treatment. We've uh, had 28 people referred under AOT currently in Nevada County. Of those, only uh, Carol, 11 al- hearings... Al- allow me to interrupt yes. you with a, with a question course. here. Thank you. First of all, this uh, program that you're doing in Nevada County, as I understand it, is, was the first and perhaps the only cal- uh, county in, the, in California to implement uh, under Laura's law. Is that correct? That's correct. We're, and, uh, we're the only one to fully implement Laura's law. And when you say uh, you identify these people prior to something bad happening, how, does, how do you identify them? How does that come about? They are uh, referred to the county, and the county then contacts us, and we go ahead and do what's called an investigation. The investigation phase determines whether or not they meet criteria, which is very, very limited. It's uh, very uh, specific in terms of who would qualify for this. This this actually protects people that don't qualify from having to be ordered into treatment. Um, uh, while, you know, it's preserving the rights of the individual as, as well as is protecting the rights of, of the community as well. Who might refer uh, these uh, uh, potential candidates for this program to you? How do, they, how do they come to the attention of those who would refer them to you and then who refers them to you? Because this is a question that's being, of course, looked at in this Aaron Bassler case here in Mendocino County. How is it that this person came to the attention and yet wasn't referred? So tell us how you do it there, please. Yes, the- the person's parent or spouse or sibling or child um, who is 18 years or older can request an AOT uh, treatment um, on behalf of their family member. Uh, law enforcement, peace officers, parole or probation officers um, that have been assigned to supervise the person may also request um, any person 18 or older with whom the person resides, so um, a partner living with the person could could also request an AOT. The director of a public or private agency uh, providing mental health services to the person, perhaps the person has dropped out and there is um, assessed a level of risk to the community or that person that... Um, 
that alerts the the director of mental health for the county. So what also, you're saying, if, if, what you're saying, if I understand you, then, is that the the assisted outpatient treatment, this special program, can receive and uh, get a, an applicant referral from a family member, from a relative, from a co-inhabitant, from treatment providers, or their supervisors, or peace officers, or perhaps from the court. Is that correct? All these various, pe- uh, the, these various That's modalities? That's correct. And, yes. uh, so let me just, before we go on with description of the program, let me uh, bring Judge Anderson in and say, Judge Anderson, how do you interface, and how does your department interface with this referral system? Well, we have to set up a uh, court process in order to protect the individual's rights. So if a Laura's Law petition is filed, uh, we've set up a process where it can be quickly brought into the court system uh, a lawyer made available for the person so they can be represented at all times in the process and then get them in front of the court. And the court often participates in trying to um, interview the, the patient, see if they uh, are interested in accepting the services that are being offered, and sometimes uh, mediating the modification of services so that the patient has a say in what their treatment plan looks like. Now, I heard a word there that sort of stood out for me as you were speaking, and that was the word accepted. So the person can accept or decline this special program, is that correct? That's, the concept behind it is to get voluntary compliance. Uh-huh. So the way the program works is if a referral is made to the director of the mental health department seeking uh, services and the criteria is met, the first thing that the director does is reach out to have that person uh, interviewed by a mental health professional, which in our our county is Carol, uh, Ms. Stanchfield. And she interfaces with the person. Generally, that is all that it takes to get that person uh, to accept services. It's that human interaction, building up a rapport with an individual who's not there to subdue them, but to assist them and respect them, that seems to work most of the time. For those that are still reluctant to accept services and it's referred to the court for a hearing, then the whole purpose of the process is to uh, try to engage the person to the point where they'll accept services voluntarily. And uh, what Carol has been able to do and uh, is that is to be flexible so that oftentimes we've modified the services that are offered to the person at the court hearing in order to get the person to engage. And then as they engage and generally get uh, increased their stability, they generally accept other services that uh, are being offered. Thank you. So let's come back to to Carol now. Carol, uh, the, the way the judge is describing it, you're in a critical position because it's your job to create what we call a therapeutic alliance with this person. And since they're being referred to you, they're not necessarily volunteering to come in to see you. Tell us something about how the creation of that therapeutic alliance comes about and how successful you've been in creating it, please. Um, what What I read into this, law and the implementation of AOT when I first um, encountered it was that there is a level of choice here for for individuals that are referred to us. 
and in my meeting with with the person i I will uh, describe the services that we we are offering. I will ask them what they need um, and and one hundred percent of the time, one hundred percent of the people referred to us under AOT have little to no insight at all into their mental illness. This is called anisognosia. It is a neurological syndrome associated with some of the severe mental illness that we work with. Um, But that's a wonderful word, anisognosia. Yes, yes. It it really is a a significant... um, uh, consideration in doing this work, and so I, I really don't focus as much initially on the mental illness. I focus on the need that the person has to improve their situation in life. And we may have to go out. We do a lot of outreach and engagement, so I may be looking for this person, um, and I may take people with me. We may even have um, a law enforcement standby so that we can uh, attempt to do uh, a meeting, an evaluation, uh, wherever they may be. You're actually, um, going at, you're actually going out into the community. You're actually approaching the person out in public or in some uh, situation. Is that what you're telling us with, a, with yourself? There are many or, situations, yes, yes. In, in fact, uh, many people that I have assessed have been uh, in jail. You know, we will go out... We don't always have an address. These aren't always people that have homes. They are often homeless uh, and many times are picked up and they're either in the hospital at the first uh, intake or they're in jail. And many of these these clients I've met in jail. And I tell them a little bit, I first of all want them to tell me about how they got there and, and how... Um, uh, a little bit about their lives, and then tell them a little bit about what we might be able to do to help them. And then I give them a choice. Honestly, I will say uh, these these are uh, services that, that are offered to you. And I have to tell you that if you choose not to engage voluntarily, um, if you meet criteria, then the court may... Um, may persuade you to 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 participate in treatment the court may order you to to treatment but by the time i've met with them um you know a few times uh usually they're engaging in treatment because immediately they're starting to to have this engagement with other people they're starting to feel that their their circumstances are improving whether or not they start taking medication immediately, that usually doesn't happen, but that they begin to engage in treatment, that's the first step to fuller treatment. And um, one example I have is, is one from very recently in, in April, we were referred um, a client who had uh, actually assaulted someone nearby um, because of a delusion, a strong fixed delusion that he had um, so he was uh, in jail when I met him. He had uh, he he self-identified as a person with lots of money who didn't have a mental illness, who had though been homeless for eleven years in reality, and um, and uh, he didn't need anything that we had. 
but we continued to try to build a relationship with him. It took weeks and weeks until he finally um, agreed to a temporary housing situation. After 11 years of homelessness, that was very difficult for him, so he fleed uh, but came to our office every day came to our office every day but chose to live in the woods. Eventually, um, little by little, he did go into a temporary housing situation and now is living in a home that he rents um, with two other uh, co-renters and doing very, very well. Outstanding. Doing very well. Outstanding uh, success story. Fully in treatment. Yeah, I'd like to just sort of pull that apart for our listeners and, and point out the delicacy of your work because for example in, in my practice the vast majority of the people who come to see me are voluntary self-identified they recognize that they've got certain emotional psychological intellectual uh, issues or problems if you will and they're voluntarily seeking treatment you are in the opposite end of the continuum where you're actually going to the patient to the identified patient and if you don't mind the terminology, you're, you're, you're almost selling them on the importance of their getting into treatment. And, and as, as odd as this may sound to many of us, these folks that you're dealing with, who are so obvious in a supermarket or in a store to the vast majority of us because of the aberrant way in which they behave or because of the you know the symptomatology that they manifest everywhere they are i was in a store just recently and i talked about this on air about a month ago i was in a store recently where a man came into the store and he had an eye patch on and he was dressed like a pirate and he started talking loudly and immediately everyone in the store you know froze up all over the store and you know exactly what i'm talking about carol of course mm-hmm. and 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 listeners i'm sure some listeners are wondering how is it possible that folks who are so different, if you will, how is it possible that, that these folks who are so different to the rest of us that we can, that, that lay people can identify them almost immediately when they're you know, in, in a supermarket or out in the open, that they don't recognize themselves that they're suffering when so many of the other disorders that we human beings have we recognize, I mean, certainly physical pain, a headache, a toothache, uh, something in the side, in appendicitis, we recognize it. Psychologically, we all know what it feels like, or most of us, and I shouldn't say all, but the vast majority of us know what it means to feel anxiety. And when the anxiety gets so high or, or the depression gets us so low, we, we feel it and we know it. And we know when it gets to the point of something's amiss so that we go for help. If we're having marital problems, I mean, we're quite aware of it. We're living in a, in a marital situation that, that, that's painful and we go for help. You're talking about a specific clientele here suffering from an interesting word, Anasagonia, where they do not recognize what they have. And therefore, it's your job to, to reach out to them and make this alliance and somehow gently and delicately bring them into treatment. Do I have it right? I, yes, you absolutely have it right. And I think that it could be called sales. Uh, we <laughs> could be doing some sales salesmanship here, or we can call it uh, a compassionate persuasion. And I think that um, that 
is is really important to consider because as Judge Anderson knows that that this is interwoven among agencies and among the team and the team includes the court and uh, the public defender and the district attorney or the 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 um, help me judge uh, county council. the county council yes. Um, all of us uh, go into a situation with with clients in which we are there to to uh, help them take seriously the the process, the legal process, while we are uh, there to collaborate and provide an alternative to what otherwise is 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 bound to happen, and that is. Um, uh, what we know, some of us know, as a 5150, uh, um, and many times people go into a locked setting uh, frequently for a long period of time. Let, let, so, let's switch uh, over. Allow me to interrupt you kindly, and uh, yeah. let's switch over to Judge Anderson to give us some background and talk to us about a 5150 and when and how and when that has to be used. Please, Judge. Yeah, 5150 is a California Welfare and Institutions Code, which allows for the involuntary, that is, forced hospitalization of someone who's become a danger to themselves or others. And that you frequently see that, and it's, it's a real burden to, like, law enforcement and families when they're, uh, when the individual gets, uh, declines to such the point mentally where they're either harmful to themselves or to others, they generally oftentimes end up getting arrested and taken to emergency rooms where then the medical staff is trying to deal with this person who's in the midst of a psychosis, and ultimately they're found, most of the time they're found um, to, to be, need forced hospitalization and then hearings for forced medication. And the whole goal of uh, Laura's Law, of course, is to provide a safety net before the person decompensates to that level. And because that level, of course, as you know, creates a lot of damage to the brain, which the more it happens, the harder it is for that person to recover. So with Laura's Law, if you can catch them before they get to that point, you know, not only are you helping that person, uh, making it, giving them a better chance to live a more normal life, avoiding that kind of brain damage, and you're also realistically saving an awful lot of money for your county government. Now, under the 5150 judge, where you can hold a person against their will if they're a danger to themselves or others, you can hold them for 72 hours. What happens at the end of the 72 hours where that person is still a danger to themselves or others? Are you allowed to hold them longer, or do you have to release them at that point? The, uh, you, most, in most instances, there's a determination made by the by the directors of the facility, the hospitals where the person's at, to, I think it's, uh, what is it, it's a 5250, which then extends that person's stay for another two weeks before they need another hearing. And at the next, so, at the next hearing, after the 5250, can they be held involuntarily, uh, or do they have to be released under present law? So at that point, usually they're seeking temporary conservatorship powers, which means they can then be held... Uh, in depth, until a hearing is held on a permanent conservatorship. And then once the person's conserved, of course, they lose all their rights, uh, pretty much, and uh, their care and their living situation is determined by the, by the conservator, who in most counties, 
is the uh, public guardian. So realist, the, the, the framework is the 5150 leads to a 5250, then leads to further uh, hospitalizations and ultimately to conservatorships. Each stage, the person has less and less rights as they go along. So there are, there's, uh, there are observations and, and professional uh, observations that are made along the line as these people come to your attention so that, say, in the case of the Aaron Bessler, where, where he was, uh, you know, he has a long history, uh, and had he had the history perhaps in your county of, say, driving into a, uh, a middle school uh, tennis court at 80 miles per hour under the influence and acting strange, um, he might have then gone through the procedure in order to be, say, uh, persuaded, if you will, to accept treatment rather than gone to jail and, uh, and, and uh, probation. Is that correct? And more than likely, when he, uh, if, if when he started acting out in those ways around in, in our county, uh, his parents or somebody would have called behavioral health who would have referred him to uh, Turning Point, and then in, in, in our county, of course, Ms. Stanchfield would then go out and intervene with him and start the process. And then that brings the person to the attention of, of course, the local mental health agencies and local authorities and starts the process of trying to engage them into services. And it was... A, go ahead, please. There's part, of, there's part of Laura's law, of course, um, where once the person's brought in, you sort of use the power of the court to help coerce them to accept some level of treatment to get them started. And that's the main purpose of the court is, at that stage, is to just, whatever influence the courtroom and the judge in the, in the robe has on the person to help encourage them or coerce them to accept some level of treatment, uh, it's the starting point to try to get them engaged. And um, fortunately for us, when we've had to resort to that, uh, it's had a positive effect, and it's, it begins the process of engagement, which then leads to uh, the person, once they start getting stable, sort of recognizes that stability makes them feel better, and they can engage in more services and need the court even less. Christina Ragosta with the uh, Treatment Advocacy Center in Arlington, Virginia. Please tell us your perspective on what we're talking about and how it's being addressed on the national level. Sure. Uh, well, the Treatment Advocacy Center is that we're a national group um, and we work in states throughout the country to improve mental health treatment laws to try to help people with severe mental illness, uh, such as schizophrenia and bipolar, before they end up in the criminal justice system, um, homeless or, or worse. Um, and, and Laura's law is is one of the the types of laws that we we work on um, right now. There are 44 states. Um, throughout the country that permit, permit the use of assisted outpatient treatment, um, also known as outpatient commitment and other terms that vary state to state. Laura's law is California's assisted outpatient treatment law. These laws, when they're implemented, have been proven time and time again um, to be effective at reducing the incidence and duration of hospitalization, homelessness, arrest, victimization, violent episodes, uh, not to mention saving, saving money. 
my understanding is that Nevada County has saved uh, around half a million dollars um, the the first couple of years of implementation. I'm sure uh, Carol and, and Judge Anderson would would know uh, more of the details of that. But you know, the the biggest issue that many states are are facing is with implementation of their existing laws. Tell us more about that. What's the difficulty with implementing their laws? Uh, it varies um, significantly from state to state. Uh, you know, the, the biggest issue in, in California and um, the, the difference between California and other states is that the statute, AB 1421, requires that each individual county in California pass a resolution to implement the law, um, which is is significant, um, obviously, because Nevada County and a, and a small pilot program in Los Angeles counties are the only counties that have done that. Um, so, you know, aside from that, the law in California is, is similar to other states. Um, implementation in other states, you know, the issues there vary significantly. Um, in some states, it might be a lack of education as far as what the law allows for. Um, in in other states, it, it may be a lack of, of infrastructure um, or, you know, a, a lack of uh, willingness, frankly, to, to implement these types of laws because of philosophical objections to um, outpatient commitment laws. So it, it really does vary state to state, um, but it has been... Excuse me for interrupting. Please give us an example of a, phys- a philosophical objection to implementing a law such as Laura's law. Um, uh, you know, I think there are there are uh, some individuals who uh, who argue that any type of of services that are not voluntary um, should not be allowed. Um, and one of the requirements of Laura's law is that a person be unable to um, voluntarily accept services. So, um, you know, that that's one objection that we hear frequently. That the person, in other words, they're, they're concerned about coercion in the, in the sense that in this country, the uh, uh, involuntary treatment uh, used to be used as a, a, a battering ram or as, a, as a, 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 a method of coercion or putting people away and they're concerned about the civil liberties aspect? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I, you know, the, the civil, civil rights discussion comes up, uh, comes up frequently um, when we're talking about any type of um, quote-unquote involuntary treatment. Um, I think that one of the the misunderstandings about these types of laws is, is who the intended audience is. As, as Carol mentioned earlier, um, the, the types of uh, individuals that will be impacted by these laws are, are, are so ill that they have no recognition of their illness. Um, these laws are not meant to be punitive in nature, and, um, and I don't think that it's civil to, to uh, force people to be homeless and untreated um, rather than than provide them an avenue to care. Yeah, let me uh, say something historically uh, with regard to what you're saying. It wasn't that long ago in this country 
that we locked people away in almost dungeons. There was a movie, The Snake Pit, uh, years ago. I think it was called The Snake Pit, you know, about mental hospitals. And we did lock them. In, in my time, 50 years ago, I, I witnessed uh, people in mental hospitals uh, as, a young, as a, a young person. I witnessed uh, working in a mental hospital in New Hampshire. I, I witnessed patients uh, being hit over the head with, um, with uh, stockings filled with bars of soap as a way of subduing them. I witnessed patients being wrapped in uh, sailcloth and then uh, hosed with, uh, with freezing water. Um, I, wish, I witnessed them being shocked in, in very primitive ways. And, and so there's a, a history of abuse, and there's also a history of, of uh, involuntary admission, if you will, where people with uh, a certain amount of money or a certain amount of political power were able to put others away for lengthy, if not indeterminate, periods of time. And so the pendulum did swing, and the judge can tell us more about this with regard to the history of 5150, but the pendulum did swing in the opposite direction in order to make it more and more difficult to put people away involuntarily because it was a reaction to those days when we did put people away against their wills, some of whom uh, I've actually treated in mental hospitals who had no a mental condition whatsoever, but who were put away there by their family or for political reasons. And we do know there are countries around the world to this day where people are put away for lengthy periods of time in mental hospitals as a punishment, right. as a way of getting rid of them. So in an effort here to, to create a much more humane society in our country, we've gone in the other direction. And so now you, what, what I'm hearing from you, uh, Christina, is that there, you know, the people are speaking out against something that may have, you know, wonderful implications and a good track record here because of their, you know, concern about the civil liberties aspect. And this just, all this does is put the spotlight on how complex an issue this is. Sure. And, and, you know, and I think one, one place we can look here in our country is, is at our jails and prisons. Um, in every state in the country right now, a person with mental illness is more, more likely to be in jail or prison than a psychiatric hospital. Please, would you say that again? That is so important. Just in every state in the country, I believe an individual with severe mental illness is more likely to be in jail or prison than in a psychiatric hospital. Judge Anderson, would you comment on that for us, please? Absolutely. I believe the largest mental facility in California is the Los Angeles County Jail. Not a hospital. I mean, their medical health, their mental health facility. So it is that ongoing problem in our local juvenile hall. Usually, approximately twenty-five to percent to thirty-three percent of the population has significant mental health issues. The same statistic goes with our adult jail. And so this is a constantly, constant problem. Uh, when you talk with the, the, the correctional officers who work in the jails and prisons, they are not trained or educated to deal with severe mental illness, and yet every day they have to find ways to deal with it. And it's always problematic, and it's always dangerous for them to do so. And they're as much aware of it as anybody else, and yet there's really there's very few solutions available to them. And so, in Laura's law, if when you look at it, our our AOT program or 1421, uh, it's also Welfare and Institutions Code 5345, uh, and the and sections that follow it uh, allows representation by counsel. So the way we've organized this is as soon as someone's identified 
that they're going to seek a court petition to bring them to court to try to get them engaged in services, a lawyer is appointed. Whether they end up hiring their own lawyer or choosing not to have a lawyer, uh, that's their decision later on. But we appoint the public defender has agreed to step in and represent them right away so that the lawyer is available to them. And that's, I think, a very critical piece because it, it protects the rights of the individual. And that's the goal out front of Laura's Law is not only to, to provide a safety net for folks, but also to make sure their rights are protected as we, as we go through this process. And, I, and to me, that really answers that, uh, that sort of philosophical uh, objection that the opposition to non-voluntary services. This is designed to be principally voluntary. Of course, the court has some authority and some coercive power to try to get the person to participate. But ultimately, you know, as long as they're under this phase of the, of the statute, it's still principally a voluntary program. Let, let me uh, read to you what I believe are the criteria for a person being eligible for the assisted outpatient treatment program. Please correct me, Judge Anderson and and Carol, uh, if I'm mistaken here, but I'd like the public to know that there are these criteria, that this isn't in any way uh, just a a come-see, come-saw situation where somebody comes to the attention and they're put into this or forced into this program. The criteria include being mentally ill and at least 18 years old. They have to have a history of poor treatment compliance leading to at least two hospitalizations or incarcerations in the last 36 months or violent behavior at least once in the last 48 months. They need to have been offered and to have declined voluntary treatment in the past. They need a clinical determination to indicate that they are unlikely to survive safely in the community without supervision and participation in the outpatient program needs to be the least restrictive measure necessary to ensure recovery and stability their condition needs to be substantially deteriorating and must likely benefit from treatment and lastly they are not being placed in the treatment program as to be harmful to themselves or, or, or others. They're being placed in it in order to assist them. Are these, are these the criteria? Do I have it correct here for the, people, for the listeners to hear? Yes, you do. yes, exactly. Is there anything you want to add to that or to tell us more about how these criteria are determined? Well, I, let me just add to that that these are the criteria that are necessary before the court can order them into the Laura's Law program and put them under court supervision. Uh, where it really happens is people who appear to maybe meet that criteria are the ones that are referred for investigation. And once they're referred to investigation and the outreach from the AOT provider is made, in, in most cases, the far greater majority, that initial contact, that between the uh, mental health investigator and the person is is enough to get that person engaged. So that it's not, well, that criteria is, is strict and severe. Uh, it, it does, it, it resolves itself in the initial outreach in most every case. 
which is the wonderful part of this of the of this program that that it actually resolves itself and and that of course has a lot to do with you carol and your outreach and yes please go ahead yes in most in most cases the treatment that is uh, initiated is enough to begin the engagement process and we we start to see improvement within within days or weeks there are and i would say this is very important because a couple of people that we have done the investigation on their behalf uh, were likely to have met all criteria. My investigation suggested that they they would. However, um, they refused treatment. They refused uh, to come to court, for example. Uh, and so that presents a whole other dimension to this. And I think that's something that that we could maybe um, imagine in this situation in Mendocino County. What about if this person receives a notice of hearing and they don't show up? They continue to meet criteria in terms of of the the assessment that is done on their behalf, but we don't have someone that is providing information. We only have information from law enforcement and from the family, and we don't have someone coming to court. So then what do we do? Uh, the notice of hearing goes out. There is noncompliance or non-adherence to cooperate with that notice, and then we may have information about where this person is, and we we have a, a standby. We have a civil standby with law enforcement, and they are able to either bring the person um, into court or uh, in their absence, the judge may order hospitalization so that an assessment can be made. So that's another thing that's happened and, and would happen in, in other communities as well because we don't have, again, people who understand that they have an illness, so why would they go for treatment and why would they go uh, to a, a formal hearing on their behalf when, you know, they're really not functioning in the capacity to do so. So they're... Um, the process uh, is is helpful in that we have sometimes people who want to go to the hearing and will um, refuse treatment, and they are uh, determined to meet criteria, and so the court will order voluntary treatment on their behalf. Um, and the court can do that. Yes. And I want to read that last, the last criteria that, uh, of the seven that I read before. I want to read it over. Not being placed, not being placed in the assisted outpatient treatment most likely will result in the patient being harmful to self or others or gravely disabled. Not being yes. placed in it will result in that. So therefore, that is an important criteria, which, of course, the court, the court can use. People listening to this, uh, Judge Anderson and Carol Stanchfield and Christina Ragosta in, in Arlington, people listening to this, some of them are asking, well, this sounds pretty interesting, uh, but listen to how many people are involved. We've got the court and the mental health system and the police involved, etc. This sounds like it cost a fortune at a time when the country and the states and, and the counties can hardly afford anything. 
Well, how, and then we heard Christina Ragosta say that she thought that in Nevada City uh, County, rather, you were actually saving money. That you saved. Did you actually save money, um, uh, Carol and, and Judge Tom? Um, I I can answer uh, from my perspective. Nevada County saved a dollar eighty-one for every dollar invested in uh, AOT. There was a forty-five percent net savings. Um, Overall, or $503,000 to Nevada County. Over what period uh, of time did you save the 500000 In in the in the two years that this data represents. So okay, that would be 12, in, over I'm the sorry. 12 months prior. In 12 months prior, you saved 500000 Let me segue to, to Arlington, Virginia. Christina, do other, do other states, counties, as far as you know, around the country, are they aware of the cost savings of this pilot project in Nevada County, California? Um, I, I don't know, you know, whether all the states are aware of Nevada County's cost savings on this issue. We, we certainly are, and, um, it, you know, states that and counties across the country that have implemented assisted outpatient treatment laws have routinely seen these sorts of cost savings, and, and the reason for that is because of the reduction in days spent in the hospital and the reduction in arrests and incarceration, uh, the most expensive form of psychiatric treatment is psychiatric hospitalization. And so assisted outpatient treatment not only provides a, a less restrictive alternative to hospitalization, but it's a, it's a much less costly one. So, you know, I, I hope that other states are becoming aware of, uh, of Nevada County's uh, experience, um, and we'll certainly continue to put the word out about that um, because it's, you know, a compassionate and uh, effective avenue towards treatment for people. Do you know to what extent, if any, the uh, central office of the American Psychological Association in Washington, D.C. is involved in this program or in spreading the word, should I say, about the uh, Nevada County pilot pro program? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I know, you know, we've worked in the past with the American Psychiatric Association, um, but, but I don't know uh, about the Psychological Association, but I'd certainly be, be happy to talk with them about the issue. Yes, yes, I would refer you to them uh, because uh, of the, the, uh, national, the international presence and, and importance of, of their organization. Those are the two, two APAs, the American Psychiatric and the American Psychological Association, that have the greatest clout around the country with regard to you know, professional uh, connection with this and spreading the word. Um, I want to come back to a question that's on the mind of many people in the community in Mendocino County where these two murders took place. And that is, once you get a person into one of these programs and they're properly diagnosed, uh, they're in treatment, and they're taking medication, what, if anything, can you do whether it be you in the outpatient, in the assisted outpatient program, Carol, you from the judicial judge, uh, from the treatment advocacy center, what can be done, if anything, to keep these folks on their medication? That is a big concern in the community. As I spoke to uh, the district attorney uh, in Mendocino County, David Eister, yesterday, he, he told me about a well-known case that he's been familiar with for years where a man takes his meds and is a decent member of the community, but when he goes off his meds, he's dangerous to himself and everybody. 
What can be done to keep people on their medication? How do you all handle that? You want to take well, it, Carol, or Judge? I'll start with just the way Laura's law is teed up is that uh, you, mo- you monitor their stability for six months through the court. Um, and then it, whether or not it, has, it gets extended or not depends on the individual. And after that, they're still in treatment. So they continue to be uh, received services. And then Carol can speak from that stage on. Yes. Um, Laura's Law, the, the court order lasts 180 days, but I think that it's been um, demonstrated in other AOT programs across the country that there needs to be a mechanism in place to sustain that. And with some, uh, some individuals don't need more than 180 days to continue with uh, community treatment. And they realize in one way or another that the quality of their life is, is so improved that they want to sustain that. Others have been severely ill for 30, 40 years. And six months is a very short period of time to begin um, a process of ongoing um, participation in which uh, stability will be sustained. And so there there really needs to be uh, some scaffolding there. Laura's Law in Nevada County, I think, has determined that in some cases, we need to look closely at that 180-day period, that six months, and determine whether or not a person is likely to continue or not. And so we, we pay close attention, continue to provide support. Sometimes the, prof- the support is medication outreach. Sometimes it is helping the person to remember to take their medication every day, in the morning, in the evening, if, if that's how it's prescribed. How do you do so that? A give, us a, give us some specifics. I, I'd like to, the listeners to know what you mean by medication outreach and what you mean by, by oversight into, and helping them take their medication. Please give us specifics. So we're a community-based support, and every individual is is different. So treatment is going to be unique to that individual. Some people are their ability to manage uh, part of their care or their treatment is is much higher than others. And so if we have someone in early recovery that's managing uh, their their um, mental illness fairly well, we're not going to be as involved. It's, it, we're not going to see them every single day of the week, whereas someone who is extreme risk or high risk when we first uh, meet them, uh, we may have more uh, frequent contact with that person. How frequent? On a How daily fre- basis. Maybe a daily it, basis. That's phenomenal. It, it can be up to really? seven days a week. Okay. And we do have a rotation of outreach medication. So some people need uh, to have support in getting their medication. And for some, it's too dangerous to give them a week's supply or two weeks or a month's supply of their medication. So we just kind of help them until they're ready. You do. And then do, you actually call, they- do you actually call some people on the phone to help them with their, take their medication? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It can be on the phone. It can be in the community. So we can actually go to their door and and have some time to interact with them. That's also important in terms of of ongoing connection, and that's therapeutic uh, uh, support. And 
and then their medication. It's an opportunity to to help them manage that when they they um, are not able to do so, uh, especially in the initial stages of treatment. You know, on a professional level, I've got to say how, how outstanding this sounds to me, because as a private practitioner, I'm able to call some of my severely the disturbed patients who need it on a daily basis, and I can call them and, and remind them to take their medication and have checklists and various ways of, of making certain they take their meds. But this is the first time I've ever heard in my career of a public agency reaching out to this extent where you actually call to ensure that people are taking their meds or, or, or actually see people on a daily basis basis at, at some points in their in their development and 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 what I want to underline here which which is emblazoned in my mind in red is that you're able to do this to make these outreach calls to actually go out into the community to identify the people to follow up on their medication and you're saving five hundred thousand dollars in 12 months at the same time I mean that that must be very rewarding, and and I'm I'm hoping, uh, Christina, that uh, that your advocacy center is uh, you know is, is is documenting this and spreading the word as much as possible. Yes, uh, yes, we are. And funny you should mention that we will be um, releasing a assisted outpatient and assisted outpatient treatment manual in the very very near future, and um, that that highlights some programs around the country and. Um, I mean, this program in Nevada City must be a model program on the national level. Is that? Am I correct? It's certainly one of them. Um, you know, there are a, a number of states that um, counties within states that have done a great job of implementing their laws. Uh, Nevada County is certainly one of them. But again, coming back to you, Judge Anderson, if I understood what you were saying. The way the law works, this 1421, each individual county must then pass some kind of provision in order to implement law's law within the county. Is that correct, sir? That's correct. You know, the legislature, when they passed it, uh, passed it as an unfunded uh, statute. An unfunded statute. So, So it's up to each county to find the money. And that's one of the problems, I think, with implementation is many counties for various reasons, partly being afraid of change, partly being afraid of implementing something new because they assume that implementing a new program is going to add to their budget. And they just don't accept the representation that, you know, they're saving, you know, it's a, they're saving $1.81 for every dollar they invest. They're getting over a 50% return on this program. And uh, to be quite honest, for the for the life of me, as I've been uh, going to other counties and talking about this program, I have yet to hear a reason why not to implement it. I don't understand why all counties just haven't rushed to implement this, because the financial aspect is obviously very important and essential in this day and age, but that's that's addressed. And what they're still not addressed is the uh, incredible relief and lives saved and families who are given some relief from their loved one who's suffering from this mental illness. And the ripple effect of catching somebody before they decompensate to a 5150 level, uh, you know, is huge. And that's something you can't put a dollar figure on, but if you, you could, it would be immense. So, I think that's a great place to end today's program. 
I want to thank you, Judge Anderson. Thank you, Carol Stanchfield of the Turning Point Providence Center in Grass Valley. Thank you, Christina Ragosta of the Treatment Advocacy Center in Arlington, Virginia. What you heard was a program about the implementation of Laura's Law in California, and particularly in Nevada County. You heard about an assisted treatment program for folks who are in dire need of treatment, who often don't know that they are in need of treatment, and who come to the attention of those in Nevada County where this pilot program is going on, and who are then uh, brought into treatment in what sounds like a very humanitarian manner in order to, if you will, persuade them to come into treatment because they have an illness that they're not aware of having, which creates a danger to the public and to themselves. You can find out about Laura's Law by Googling it. You can look up the Treatment Advocacy Center in Arlington, Virginia. And you can look at the Turning Point Providence Center in Grass Valley, California. Carol Stanchfield is the director there, and you heard her today. I hope this, today's program gives you some hope and encouragement with regard to what is being done to make progress towards identifying these folks who are in need, towards treating them, and towards doing so in a way that is so financially cost-effective that the counties who implement the program actually make a dollar eighty-one, in Judge Anderson's words, for every dollar that they invest. I look forward to meeting with you again. We'll be talking more about this issue in the future. Thank you for today, today's program. Thank you to the staff of KZYX, and particularly Mary Eigner for producing it and making this program possible, and to our engineer, Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 a.m. Pacific Daylight Savings Time. And until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.